0: Brothers and sisters, in our lives, we are constantly put before choices. Some choices are easier to make than others. For example, what to wear in the morning or what to eat for breakfast. Other choices are not as easy. For example, how to deal with those in authority over you and who want you to do something which you consider to be wrong, but others don't. So what do you do? Do you submit and go along with the others, or do you just disobey? In life, we constantly have to make decisions also in our relationships. How do I deal with a difficult brother? Do I say something about his bad behavior, or do I just let it go? Time and again, we have to ask ourselves what the will of the Lord is. How do we know? The men with David seemed to know exactly what the will of the Lord is. As far as they were concerned, it was God's will to get rid of the wicked King Saul. They didn't have a doubt about it. This is the opportunity they had been waiting for and which God had created for them to get rid of that evil king. But are they right about this? For as we can see from the text, David disagrees with them. He does not think that it is the Lord's will to take Saul's life. How does David know this? How can he be so sure? How can any one of us be sure about the choices that we make? So that's what I want to preach to you about this morning. It's about the will of the Lord as revealed in David's sparing of Saul's life. First, we look at David's dilemma, and then in the second place, David's resolution, or we could also say, the Lord's answer. So then first, David's dilemma, and we give a bit of a history about his relationship with Saul. At this moment, here in this chapter, Um, David's situation was quite desperate. He was a man on the run, for Saul had had been pursuing him for some time now. He wanted to get rid of him in the worst way. Why? What had David done to make Saul so angry with him? At first, King Saul was quite fond of David. It even says in chapter 16, verse 21, that he loved David greatly. He had even made David his armor-bearer and became a close companion of his. Whenever Saul felt down and out and depressed, he would call for David, uh, who would then play the harp for him, which would soothe his mood and make him feel better. After David killed Goliath, Saul also wanted David to become his son-in-law and gave him a high rank in the army. This also pleased the people, including Saul's officers. David became a hero. Everybody loved him. But it is at this point that things start to turn sour. For now, David receives greater honor than Saul. When the soldiers came home from fighting against the Philistines, the women would sing Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And we know from 1 Samuel 18, verse 8, that Saul was angry at this. It says that the refrain galled him. He was afraid now that David would supplant him from the throne. He was also very jealous. And such fear, of course, was not without foundation. For earlier, Samuel had told Saul that God would take his kingdom away from him and give it to another. That is because Saul had become arrogant and did not want to give glory to God for his successes. He was totally self-absorbed. Not only that, David had already been anointed to be king by Samuel. Mind you, Saul didn't know about this, for this was done in secret, But nevertheless, Saul did see how God's hand was with David and not with Saul. The Lord God had turned away from him. Time and again, we read this. And instead of looking at himself as for the cause, he looks outside of himself. He blamed David for his waning popularity, he even blamed David for God. Going against him. Isn't that often what sinful, unrepentant, sinful people do? People who do not want to change blame others for their problems. If there is turmoil in their lives, well, that's somebody else's fault. To blame others is much easier. That's what happened already In paradise, isn't it? Right after the fall into sin. And it is hard to take blame and to look at yourself and to change. For that means that you have to repent from your sins. You have to go in a different direction. And you have to admit that you were wrong. Saul did not want to repent. And so he became an instrument in the devil's hands. And that's what happens. Saul was so angry with David that he began to plan to take his life. David had at first refused to take Saul's oldest daughter as his wife, and in the meantime had been given into marriage. But now Saul insists that he marry his second daughter, Michael. This time he doesn't offer his daughter in marriage because he is eager to have him part of the family no his motivations are quite sinister Saul knew that David would have to pay a dowry and the dowry that he requests from David is that he had to kill 100 Philistines by himself and provide proof Saul thought that in this way David's life would be put into danger and that he himself would be killed Turns out, however, that David was also successful in this matter. Saul then becomes more blatant in his attempt to kill David. Pretending to want him to play the harp for him, Saul calls him to his side and tries to kill him by throwing a spear at him. And he tries this on two occasions. And when that fails, he elicits the help of his son Jonathan. He wants him and his men to kill David. But Jonathan flatly refuses. He wants David and David and Jonathan are kindred spirits. Saul is now angrier than ever. And he even tries to kill his own son Jonathan. It's at that point that David knows he must flee. Jonathan also warns him. Saul chases David from one end of the country to the other. David first went to Gath, to the Philistines there, but when they discovered that David was their arch enemy, David feigns madness and he escapes from the Philistines. Then he ends up in the cave of Adullam. He sends his parents and his brothers and their families to Moab for protection there, but David remains on the run. Finally, he ends up in the wilderness of Maon, But Saul finds out about this and pursues him there with a large army. And Saul and his army completely surround him. There is no way of escape. But then just in the nick of time, Saul has to withdraw his army because he receives a message that the Philistines are attacking elsewhere. And so David is given some breathing room. And that brings us to the events of our text. For now he ends up in the desert of En Gedi. is a place on the western coast of the Dead Sea. It's a mountainous region with many caves. Some of those caves are quite deep and very large. David and his men hide in the innermost parts of the cave. It's a dark place. It's a dark place not only in the literal sense, but also figurative sense. For here you have David, a man after God's own heart and who wants to serve the Lord with all his heart. He is dedicated to the Lord God and his service. He has even been anointed as king. But look at what's happening to him. His life is in constant danger. Saul, the anointed of the Lord, hunts him down, as David himself says in chapter 26, verse 20, like a partridge in the mountains. He hunts him down like an animal. How is it possible that God allows this? How can you speak here of God's guiding hand in your life? Would that not be enough to make you turn away from God and his people? Think about it. What would you do? You're a member of the church. You want to serve the Lord with all your heart but you're being treated unjustly, you are accused of something you didn't do, and the leadership in the church does not want to hear your side of the story. They're not listening. You are being shunned by a good part of the congregation. Sadly, those things happen. Even in our circles, they shouldn't, but it does. What would you do? Would you not, in the end, turn away from the church? Perhaps even turn away from God. I want nothing to do with that bunch. Don't think that David doesn't have similar thoughts to this. From the various Psalms that he writes, we know that he is quite distraught at times. He sees things very darkly. At times, he even questions whether or not God has totally abandoned him. And in Psalm 55, he complains about the friends with whom at one time he went to the temple, who were near and dear to him, yet who later betrayed him. He sees how treacherous people are, even people in the church. In the previous chapter, chapter 23, we can read about the men of Ziph, brothers in the Lord. But they had betrayed David and told Saul about David's hiding places. And there you have a primary example of the treachery of man. It is because of their evil actions that David could not remain in the wilderness of Maon and that he had to flee to the caves by Engedi. David is surrounded by enemies. And then a wonderful opportunity presents itself Saul appears at the entrance of the cave where he and his men are hiding. And he's alone. He came there to answer the call of nature, to reveal, to relieve himself. And David and his men are back in the darkness of the cave. But Saul's silhouette is clearly visible from there. They can see him, but Saul cannot see them. Saul is standing in the light. They are in the darkness. It is understandable that the men with David see this as a great opportunity to get rid of Saul. That is clear from the words that he spoke to David, for they said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Well, nowhere are these words recorded in the Bible could well be that the Lord did speak these words to David, for not everything is recorded in the Bible. It may also be that these men made up these words because they were convinced in their own minds that it is God's doing, giving them this opportunity. The argument sounds good. Look at the kinds of things Saul has done. He's a murderer. He killed all those priests at Nob in cold blood. 85 of them were struck down with a sword without a pang of conscience. And as if that was not enough, Saul also sent his men to kill the rest of the people there. All the men and women, the children and infants, the cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Nothing and no one was spared. Saul ruled with an iron hand. Everybody was afraid of Why should David not kill him? Indeed, why shouldn't he? Second point. After the words of his men, David stealthily creeps up to where Saul is squatted, but all he does is cut off a piece of the corner of his robe. In one way or the other, David is able to do that without Saul noticing. No doubt the robe that Saul is wearing is quite a long one, or perhaps he had put it to the side. And then he goes back to his men. Now, those men will have been amazed at David's actions. How could he let such a great opportunity pass him by? If he had killed Saul, then he and his men would once again be able to taste freedom. And so could the rest of the country they would be able to breathe again and no longer have to fear for their lives at the hands of cruel Saul. And David would also be able to get his parents back from Moab so that he could go back to their farm in Bethlehem. And furthermore, wasn't even Jonathan, the eldest son of Saul, against his own father? Didn't Jonathan even support David? Why did David do what he did? Why didn't he get rid of him? What a lost opportunity. And indeed it is true that God had given Saul into David's hands. But what do you do with such an opportunity? When God gives you a certain situation in hand, what's your responsibility? What's my responsibility? Well, it always said that it is Our responsibility to do God's will, not our own. How do you know? Well, listen to what David says to his men. He says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Twice he mentions that. In the same sentence, the Lord's anointed. These are remarkable words. In the the first place, David also calls him his master. He shows shows him respect. He also calls him the Lord's anointed, and he uses God's covenant name for that Yahweh. He realizes that the Lord God is the one who put Saul in the position that he did. It is not just up to him, therefore, to get rid of him. On the contrary, there is not a hair on his head that thinks of harming Saul. It even says in verse 5 that David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. The NIV says that he was conscience-stricken. He even thought that that is something that he should not have done. For even though he did not harm Saul physically, he nevertheless violated his property. And David says in verse 7 that he persuaded his men with these words. In the original language, it actually says that he tore them apart with these words. The same word is used of, Psalm of Samson when he tears the lion apart. David uses strong language. To make sure that they clearly understand that they are not to lay one finger on Saul. Why would he be so insistent on this? Had Saul not violated his own office? Had Saul not said, had Samuel not said to Saul that God was no longer with him and that his kingdom would be taken away from him? Had Saul not squandered his right to be king over Israel? Indeed, his right to live even? well, that's not how David sees it. David shows restraint. If David had acted according to the flesh, to his own natural inclinations, he, then he certainly would have killed him on the spot. For David has shed the blood of many before that and will shed the blood of many after this. But not in this case. Do you know why? Well, because David does not want to be king, to become king by way of rebellion or revolution. He does not want to take the honor of kingship upon himself. The Lord God had promised that he would make him king. David knew that he would have to wait for the Lord to accomplish that. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Can you imagine if David had listened to his men? Saul, as we will also see this afternoon, the Lord willing, still had a lot of support in Israel, for he knew how to get enough people on his side so that he could remain in power. He was a master politician and knew how to get a significant portion of the people on his side by bribing them, by favoring them above others, by making them afraid of him. That's how dictators work. And that's how all evil men operate. As long as they have a certain power base from which to operate, they do not care about the rest. Saul was not a shepherd. He did not care about his sheep. Saul was interested only only in his own position. He was interested in power. But David knew that he would have to wait for the Lord, that he would have to wait for the Lord to act. Don't think that when David uttered these words to his men that he did this lightly. This was not just an automatic reaction, as if most people would react in the same way and in the same circumstances no this shows that this was a response that showed a lifetime preparation of preparation it was a measured response and david was a man of integrity and he was very careful with the relationship over against the lord and also the relationship of others over against the lord david wanted to walk a straight line He wanted to do that all his life. Throughout his life, he sought out the will of the Lord. Although he failed miserably at times, it was his aim always not to impose his will upon God's will. Isn't that often what you and I do as well, brothers and sisters? And that includes you, boys and girls. We want something very badly. And then we find a way of fooling ourselves into thinking, that this is the opportunity the Lord God has created for us. And so, it's the Lord's will. He wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And then we will stand up against anyone who gets in our way. Let the fight begin. I'm convinced that that is what God wants. But what happens in such cases? Well, in the meantime, God's church or our family or our business, or our government, gets torn apart. Often we take things into our own hands because we do not want to wait. We are impatient and critical. We know best. We do not, wait for, we do not want to wait for the Lord to give us clarity through prayer and through consultation with brothers and sisters in the Lord. We want, to spe- we want to speed things up and take a shortcut. We do not like to suffer either, and we'll try to avoid it, and in such a case, think that the problem will go away by itself. And then we do not act at all, even though we should. David, however, is patient. He knows that as long as he walks a straight line, that God will act in his time. God will make clear when the time is right. God had promised him his, king, his kingship. And God will realize those promises. And he will realize them in his time. If David was meant to be king, then he will become king. He doesn't need to help God along a little bit. It's true, of course, that sometimes it's hard to be patient. It means that you may have to suffer suffer injustice, perhaps, for a while. But isn't that what being a Christian is all about? Look at how the Lord Jesus himself suffered. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and following. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to his Father in heaven. He waited for his Father in heaven to act. Christ had respect for the position God had given to Pontius Pilate and to Caiaphas, the high priest. He recognized that God the Father had given these men the authority to rule. Oh yes, they abused their authority. They did so horribly. For they nailed an innocent man to the cross. But it was God's will that Christ would die for the sins of many. God used the evil actions of Pilate to bring about the salvation of man. And that, brothers and sisters, is how God acts in our lives. Whatever adversity comes our way, God will turn it to our good. Just think about what happened with Joseph. His brothers treated him with contempt. They sold him into slavery Nevertheless, Joseph says later on that even though they meant it for evil, the Lord meant it for good. When men do evil acts, God will turn it to our good. As long as we act, as long as we let God act, as long as we do not unlawfully take things into our own hands. Does that mean, then, you may think or ask that you always have to remain passive when suffering comes our way? Do you then not act? Oh, yes, you do. Christ did. He spoke up. He walked a straight line. He exposed evil like no other. But Christ did these things in love, a love for his Father in heaven and for his neighbor. He wanted men to repent. He wanted to promote God's kingdom. He wanted to bring glory to God's name. That was his aim. And that should also be our aim. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And in verse 17 he says, do not repay evil for evil. And Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. It's not always clear, even from the Bible, how to act exactly in certain circumstances. The Bible is not like a cookbook book that gives you a recipe for every situation. The answers from God do not fall out of the sky either, nor does he tap you on the shoulder and tell you exactly what course to take in life. But do you know what he does do, brothers and sisters? He gives you his word and his spirit. He dwells in your heart because you know God's word and you know what the right thing is and he gives you a clear conscience and he gives you his laws so that you know right from wrong. That's why it's so important that the Ten Commandments are read every Sunday. On the basis of his word and spirit, he gives you the ability to examine yourself as well because that's what the law does to look at yourself. And to help you make the right decisions. But it's our tendency, mine too, to set portions of God's word aside. Because it's not convenient for us at that moment. It's not a big deal, isn't it? And we rationalize our own actions away in a pious way. It's God's will that we do this. Look at the situation he has created for us. And that's how David's men rationalized things. But what a disaster it would have been if David would have listened to them. By God's grace, David clearly sees God's will. It would have been wrong for him to take Saul's life into his own hands. He is the Lord's anointed. It is not yet time for David to be king. Oh, sure, we all know David is not always that discerning. There are times when David sets God's laws aside. We will see that this afternoon, too. The most blatant example of that is when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. He didn't seek the will of the Lord. He did his own will because he wanted what he wanted. It was most convenient for him to ignore God at that time. But he would deal with the consequences later. He pushed his own ways through. But then God, in his own time, through the person of Nathan the prophet, comes to David and tells him what a terrible thing he has done. And then David repents. And that's why he is a man after God's own heart but there are horrible consequences for his actions. The child born of the union would die and the sword would not depart from the house of David. David could have spared himself a lot of grief if at that time he had also been conscious of God's will in his life. Do you want to know what the will of your life is in in certain circumstances? Then listen, listen to God's word. Let God speak to you and examine yourself. Do nothing out of selfishness and conceit or self-interest and be patient and be compassionate and be humble and realize that when others make a bad decision that you have done the same thing in your own life, but help each other and build one another up. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.